Hello everyone, it is 9.15 on Saturday, August the 3rd, and apologies for both missing last week and for this episode being so late. Uh, parenting life has kind of gotten in the way of the things that I want to do of late, and you know, some things are more important than others. Uh, we just, I never found time last weekend, and my voice was still pretty abysmal, it's still not great. But then this week, uh, yesterday, I just, I never found the time to get the recording done and then get the episode, you know, the, the quick edit that I normally do and then get it uploaded. So we're doing this today, uh, Saturday in advance of my latest attempt to play modern on a budget. So should be fun. Uh, while we were away, Mythic Championship Hogak happened in Barcelona. I don't know what they called it. Probably Mythic Championship Barcelona, but it was really Mythic Championship Hogak. And there's a few things to unpack from that. But the main topic this week is going to be about busting the myths, busting five myths about control decks. And you can bust the myth that you're playing space has to be dull and dreary by checking out our sponsor at inkgaming.com. Uh, use the promo code CCMTG10. Get 10% off your order, busting the myth that these things have to be expensive. They're not. Just go do it. It's awesome. And while you're at it, you can bust the myth that there's no good content on the internet by checking out the network at constructedcriticism.com. They've got great stuff, like all of it. Something for everybody, different kinds of content. Just go over there, do yourself a favor, check it out, and do it. And you can also, you know, help me bust the myth that I don't have people who support what I do by going over to patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg and, you know, pledge whatever amount you think is befitting of the work that I do. The show is always going to be free, but if you feel like you're getting enough back out of it that you want to help me continue making it, please feel free to go donate and I will make sure it goes to good use. Namely, the main goal in the... I'm going to say conservatively ultra long-term um, based on what we've gotten, you know, what we've got so far is uh, updating, upgrading the audio equipment since I'm doing this at home now, uh, getting a better mic so that I can record on the computer and it not sound really fuzzy and stop having to use my phone at all. Be great. So... All of that out of the way, let's dive into what happened while we were away. So I was off for two weeks, and the weekend of the the weekend before the first week, we had Mythic Championship Barcelona. And Hogak uh, Bridgevine, essentially, was 21% of the day one field. 21%. Now, for standard, I know that sounds laughable for the quote-unquote best deck to be 21% of the format. Because, you know, it took Teamer Energy getting up to like 48% before they decided to ban something. But this is modern. Since I've started playing again back in summer of 2016, the most played, like the highest percentage I've seen a deck achieve was like Humans or Death Shadow when they were the consensus best decks and they only ever achieved a metagame share of like 11 or 12 percent 
that's staggering. 11 or 12% versus Hogux 21. That's a lot of difference. And there's really good reasons why. It's quite possibly or quite probably just the most powerful thing in the format. And if you're not doing that thing, you need to be prepared for it. That's, that's just the simple fact of the matter. First of all, like you're not trying hard enough in, in the competitive community's eyes, but you just, you've got to have a plan. It may not be a good plan. It almost certainly won't work, but you got to have a plan. Attacking them at the fundamental level seems to have helped a little bit, but on the whole, it was, it, it's just so much far and away the best deck in the format. Like I wouldn't be surprised to see it top 30% or more before it actually gets its banning. The deck is just that good. And in spite of that, Tron won the event, which further cements its legacy in the uh, post-London Mulligan world as one of the best uh, the best benefactors of the London Mulligan. It's just really cool when you can mulligan away excess, excess you know, setup pieces because you just mulliganed into natural Tron on turn three. Seems pretty good. Um, it just, yeah, I don't, I don't know what else there is to say, but the, the biggest takeaway for me, uh, despite the fact that this, this tournament was, you know, so heavily dominated, like the headlines were Hogak, Tron, London Mulligan's broken, ban Faithless Looting, ban this, ban this. There was actually a really cool deck to come out of it, and that's Urza Thopter Sword. As somebody who played during the uh, Dark Depths Thopter Extended format, and someone who unreasonably loves playing Thopter Foundry and Sword of the Meek, like I love the idea of those cards being good again. Absolutely love it. Thopter Foundry Sword of the Meek is one of my favorite combos I've ever gotten to play. I've been looking for a way for a long time of like marrying it to a fast combo the way we did with Dark Depths, but obviously we don't have exactly Dark Depths in Modern, so you know there's not a lot of overlap there. And then like something like the Sahili Cat combo, while technically giving you access to both co to colors you would need to play it, like the thing that made the Dark Depths Thopter combo so special was the fact that Muddle the Mixture would tutor for literally any combo piece for either either combo, except specifically Dark Depths. Because, you know, Muddle could tutor for any two drops, so you could grab Vampire Hex Mage, you could grab Dark, you could grab Thopter Foundry, you could grab Sword of the Meat, and then, like, the whole rest of the deck was just this, like, pile of disruption and removal and interaction as a whole. And it was just a really good deck. And then they unbanned Sword of the Meat, I don't know, a little over a year ago, and it just didn't do anything until now until they figured out that you can go infinite with it with Urza. Because, you know, Urza lets you tap an artifact to float a blue, and then you just keep activating your sword until you have infinite life and infinite 1-1 flyers and can draw your deck and kill your opponent. Seems fine. It's totally fair. <laughs> I'm only being slightly hyperbolic when I say that. <laughs> but, you know, it was it's a sweet deck. Like, you know... I love seeing cards that I've played with before that seemed like they were not very good come back, be really, really good. 
on the other side of a, a, a change in a format. I love it. It's one of my favorite things. So despite all the negative narrative to come out of this event, there were some things to be excited about. Jim Davis played goblins, for God's sake. Goblins. Like, not eight whack, not fecundity storm, just goblins. I, I don't know, like, how are you not excited by that? That's awesome. Even if he did end up going eight and eight, which he thought was ironic because, you know, eight, eight was a perfect record, a symbolization, if you will, of mythic championship Hogak because Hogak's an eight, eight. Anyway, I'm, I'm already starting to go off the rails and Brett's not even here for me to pin the blame on. So let's move on to our main topic this week. So we, we've had a lot of discussion about different deck types on this show between the actual podcast and then now me doing the deck text on writing in cars. And there's a lot to unpack about every different deck. And I did an episode a couple, a few weeks ago about mid range, like my, my love hate relationship with mid range decks over the years. I hated them for a long time. And then once I finally gave up and started trying them out, like I loved them, they were awesome. That's a little bit of the opposite now. On, on this one. And I didn't want to try to tell a similar story about control. I love a control deck. I've always loved control decks because I don't like to lose. It's not that it's not that I feel they are inherently more powerful. It's not that I feel that they are, you know, fundamentally superior to anything when I say that. It's that they make me, even when I am losing, it makes me feel like I had a chance. Because if I just play the game a certain way, play the game a little bit differently, I have a chance to succeed. And in my research on control decks over the years and in all the, the, the Twitter hyperbole and the admittedly very brief excursions to Reddit, because I just, like, Magic Reddit is the worst. <laughs> but, you know... There's so many myths and hyperbole and just vitriol and anger and, you know, spite being thrown in the face of anyone who designs or builds or plays a control deck, especially in the, the age of Arena, with, with how popular Esper Control was there for a while. So rather than do a, a story time about my, my history with control decks, this week I wanted to play Mythbusters, the control deck edition. And we're going to look at five things that I hear all the time about control decks. And we're going to break down why those things are patently false and at the very least, like mostly false. So for starters, they're nothing but a bunch of expensive cards. They're expensive. They cost too much money. They play cards that cost too much mana. They're just, you know, piles of, of the best magic cards and they always win and they're just like, you know, they win because they're expensive. No. No, they do not. First of all, typically speaking, mid-range decks have a higher average price than control decks unless you're looking at modern and legacy. Like, the, the price tag, even still, like... You look at a, a list for blue-white control, and it's like similar in price to a Jun list, because Jun just playing Liliana's and uh, 
you know, set your large numbers of fetches and uh, black cleave cliffs, and we're playing, you know, Leyline of the Void in the sideboard, and we're playing these expensive, you know, just top to bottom, the, the cards in Jund are expensive. Tarmogoyfs, Lilianas, Dark Confidants. All these cards are really expensive. You look at Blue-White Control, you have Teferi and Jace. And basically everything, like Teferi, Jace, Snapcaster, everything else is cheap. Within, wow, okay. Teferi, Jace, Snapcaster, Cryptic. And then, you know, mana base being what it is, like those are always expensive, but then the rest of the deck is mostly cheap. Comparatively, like Path to Exile is like eight, eight to ten bucks. Uh, you know, Day of Judgment, Wrath of God type effects, Supreme Verdict. They're, they're not, you know, dirt cheap, but they're not the most expensive cards in modern. Jund is playing those. Infect is playing Noble Hierarch. You know, uh, Grixis Shadow is playing the, the Scalding Tar, the, the, all for like 12 fetch land mana base 12 to 15 fetch land mana base uh you know thoughtseize inquisition snapcaster like that's not what the control deck's playing the control deck is playing like search for Escanta, jace teferi narset path maybe Vendillion click like there's there's expensive cards there but there's not the most expensive cards you know and expensive cards tend to tend to flex you know kind of move around prices are malleable they, they move around all over the place so control decks don't win just because they cost more money than the opponents that's the idea of that is laughable and it's you know that's where I would point to my standard deck that I've been playing, which is VTCLA's Blue Black Terramander with some updates. And I will eventually get around to doing a, a new and updated tech on that, but I wanted to give that one a little bit of time to kind of disperse and get people interested. And then I'll come back to it. But while it's playing like Terramander and Herald of or, uh, Embodiment of Anguish or Embodiment of Agonies uh, and Kefnet and Augur, at its core, it's still just like a tap-out blue-black control deck. I just answer whatever you're doing until I can get a threat online and kill you with it. That's a control deck. And Kefnet is, by a pretty substantial margin, the most expensive card in the deck. And I only play two. It's two Kefnets and the mana base, and then everything else in that deck is cheap. Like, I'm not even playing Search for Escanta or Vraska's Contempt. Partially due to uh, rotation restrictions. Like, I'm trying not to rely too heavily on stuff that's getting ready to rotate. But also just due to the fact that I didn't have them and I didn't want to have to get them. Not right now. So, and I'm, I'm not, like, unreasonably successful with it, but it gives me the feeling that I'm in every game that I play. I've been able to beat better decks by a pretty substantial margin just by playing good magic. It's definitely not winning because its cards cost more. It's definitely not beating anybody because its cards are so expensive. So that's, that's the first narrative I want to dispel for my crowd. You can build a cheap control deck. Don't let anybody tell you you can't. 
you definitely can. So myth number two, and this one kind of is kind of two rolled into one, because the argument I hear the most about control decks is the level of skill it takes to play it. It's either the most skill-intensive deck you can possibly play or the least skill-intensive deck you can possibly play. And nobody talks about the middle ground where it actually sits. They're either, it takes the most skill because you have to know, you know, the ins and outs of the format. You have to be able to read, react, find the right answer, answer the right cards, figure out what turn it is that you need to start trying to deploy a threat and try to close the game out. Like, you know, you gotta, you just, your head's constantly, you gotta be doing calculations. On the other hand, the other community is, well, you just counter and kill everything and then eventually play something and win. You just don't lose, don't lose, don't lose, don't lose, win. How hard is that? The reality is it sits somewhere in the middle, ironically similar to the mid-range decks. And I would argue that a like an aggressively slanted mid-range deck is harder to play. And then harder than that is just an actual aggro deck at a really high level. Because at its at its core, like you still have plenty of powerful magic cards. You still have, you know, a, a good number of lands in your deck, or at the very least, you know, you know that land drops are important and you know to prioritize them when you can. You know that card selection helps you hit land drops. You know that uh, card selection helps make sure you draw the right half of your deck. And then you just have to play according to what you... The, the key thing for me in playing control has always been figuring out what the matchup is about and then cutting that off at the legs. That's what your job is. If you can cut them off at the knees based on what you know the matchup is about, you will win. That's, so a lot of your, your wins and losses are determined before you ever actually shuffle up and play. It's determined by whether or not you have the correct outs. And it's, it's not necessarily that it takes a lot more skill at magic or a lot less, you know, it's not so hard to do that you have to be one of the best players in the world to play control. And it's also not so easy to do that you can drag any idiot off the street and hand them a control deck and let them sit down and they can win. The reality is you have to have a very specific skill set to win with control at a high level. Look at somebody like Guillaume Wafotapa. That's somebody who epitomizes the idea of a control master because he can win with uh, a, a control pile in any format. But if you hand him something else, he's not nearly as good a player. His skill set is just kind of predisposed to be good with control decks. He's good at, you know, he's good at doing what control decks need you to do. So it's not that they take more skill or less skill than the average deck. Which is a weird thing to say out loud anyway. Just the average deck is just kind of a weird misnomer for magic. There's no such thing as an average deck. Every deck is wonderful and enjoyable and you should not, you know, lump them all together like that. But the reality is they don't take more skill or less skill. They just take a very specific set of skills and they will find you. And they will kill you. Anyway, um, the third myth is that they're always among the best decks in a format. And this one's mostly false. Because we've had formats where, you know, the, the number of formats where there are at least reasonable choices is staggeringly high. But 
I've been in formats where control was just completely invalidated as a choice by what other decks were doing. So to say that they're always among the best decks in a format is incorrect. But with a caveat that they are very rarely just awful. Like a well-built control deck with a competent pilot has a chance in basically any format. Because of the nature of the game that control plays. You are interested in letting, you know, you're kind of like a cover three defense in football. You just want to let everything come to you, come up and hit it before it becomes a problem. Make your opponent beat you nickel and diamond down the field. That's what you're doing here. Make your opponent beat you chip little chips of damage at a time. Don't give up the haymaker. Don't give up the big play. Just chips at a time, little bits at a time. And if you're built that way, you're capable of playing against nearly anything. As long as your, you know, your sideboards are up to snuff and all that. But there have been formats where even that wasn't necessarily true. It was really difficult to justify playing a pure control deck during fairy standard. Because fairies did all the same things you did, but in the matchup, but it, against other decks, they were really good at, you know, playing the tempo game. They were good at playing on your opponent's turn, reacting, interacting. You know, spell starter sprite just happened to be a counter spell. You know, misbind click could preemptively answer your opponent's five drop by stranding it in their hand while you then turned the corner and killed them. But then in your matchup against fairies as the control deck, they were the aggressor and, you know, they could just jam Thoughtseize into Bitter Blossom into play all my spells on your turn. And you just lose because they were inherently amazing against you. So what, you know, control was very, between fairies being amazing against you and then the mono red deck still being really good against you, but then also still being pretty good against fairies. So it was in really high representation. There's, there's no incentive to play the control deck. It's not very good. You have two bad matchups that make a really good, make up a sizable portion of the field. You don't need to do that to yourself. It wasn't until we got, you know, Vivid Lands reflecting pull mana bases, along with the Filter Lands from Shadowmoor and Eventide, that a five-color kind of tap-out control deck started to materialize. And even then, it was not great against fairies, until uh, Pro Tour Kyoto, until after Fairies lost Ancestral Vision, Rune Snag, and I know there were more cards, and I just can't remember what they were. But, you know, until Fairies had lost some ammunition, even though they still had, you know, Thoughtseize, Bitter Blossom, Sign of Una, Mistbind Click, Spellstar Sprite, Cryptic Command, like, they were still a force, but in losing a card like Ancestral Vision and losing a card like uh, Rune Snag, they were they were knocked down a peg. But even still, the the Pro Tour Kyoto winning list from Gabriel Nassif was built with fairies in mind. Like Volcanic Fallout was a board wipe against fairies that they couldn't counter. It was a strictly worse card than Fire Spout a lot of the time against other creature decks, but Volcanic Fallout was specifically the best thing you wanted against fairies because it just killed all their stuff. You know, 
that's that's what made the the five color control at Kyoto so good. It wasn't that it was just the best deck. It was that it was the best control deck we'd seen in like a year and a half prior, and it was built to beat fairies. You know, Celestial Purge, Broken Ambitions, Esper Charm to rip cards out of their hand. You were just like loaded down with ways to interact with fairies. That's what you were here for. You know, fast forward a couple of years. Jund, during the Jund, the early part of the Jund Cascade format before we got Jace the Mind Sculptor, Control was unplayable. Bloodbraid Elf into Blightning was just better than what anything you could possibly do as a Control Mage. To the point that we were playing a bunch of really, really bad magic cards in order to try to create a semblance of a Control deck in Standard. And it was really, it was like 65-35 against Jund if you played perfect and awful against everything else. So like it was still pretty good because everybody played Jund, but like it, it wasn't good. It wasn't until we got Jace the Mind Sculptor, Celestial Colonnade, and Marshall Coup to marry to Day of Judgment and, uh, you know, Wall of Omens, Path to Exile... Uh, spread, you know, the, the idea of just main decking spreading seas because it was good against what Jund was doing. You know, you could hamper their mana base a little bit, sometimes throw them off the ability to cast their two drops if you were on the play. Like, that was good. And spreading seas ended up being, you know, uh, ubiquitous in that format because of the fact that it hit creature lands. Celestial Colonnade was really good. Raging Ravine was really good. Creeping Tar Pit was, like, kind of good. Uh, Stirring Wildwood was a card people played. I'm not saying it was good or bad. It was just a card people played. Um, so the idea of playing control in that environment, and even after, uh, even after they got control decks, got Jace, Gideon, you know, all these powerhouse cards in blue and white. Mythic came out that summer. Mythic Conscription came out that summer and obliterated everybody. And it was better against the control decks because they just every single threat they played won the game on its own. So you had to kill everything to survive, which means you didn't have time to tap out for Jace or Gideon because your opponent might just strap up a, a mythic con, a Eldrazi conscription on a noble hierarch, get a finest hour on the board and just wreck your board while they kill Gideon. And then you, that's, that's not a good environment for control. And then of course, it goes without saying, Callblade. Like, I watched the matchup between what was essentially a blue-white control versus a Callblade at the uh, Player of the Year playoff between Brad Nelson and Guillaume Matignon. It was, it was demoralizing. Showed me the sheer brilliance of design that was Callblade, and just like how badly we had missed on Stoneforge Mystic. So there are definitely formats where control's not good. Another another really good example is more recent when I first came back. We had Delirium, Green Black Delirium, with access to Ishkana, Emrakul, and this kind of resource churning advantage between, you know, uh, I think the build that Nick and I played played Nissa Vital Force and 
there was another card. Uh, Liliana, the Last Hope. And then on the other end, you had decks like White Red Vehicles or Bant Company. And initially, it was Bant Company with uh, Spell Queller and Reflector Mage and all these things that were really. And then, you know, Collected Company being able to essentially play on your turn. Uh, rattle chains making it to where your spirits could play on their turn. Okay, it was just, it was obnoxious. Nothing short of obnoxious. Control wasn't good in that environment. We didn't have anything to kill your opponent with. Like, inevitably, like, the, the life cycle of a format tends to be control is not good early on, like, at all. Unless it loses literally no cards from the format previous. And then the second set comes out, throws some more cards into the format. People start experimenting. Things slow down a little bit. Then the control deck can start to take hold. And then once we get the third set, the core set, there's so many cards. People are trying so many different things. The format slows down a ton. That's where the control deck is at its best. So... They are, they are rarely the best deck in a format, but they're usually not the worst deck in a format. That's the, the biggest thing. Myth number four, only people who hate magic enjoy playing them. Get out of here. Your entire goal is playing a control deck is to play more magic over the course of an event. You want all of your games to go on forever. How is that not somebody who loves magic? That's like the, the antithesis to that argument. <laughs> you want your games to go on forever because you just want to sit there and hold your opponent ransom and play with them until you both... Uh, this is getting weird. I'm going off the rails again. But obviously, like, this one I don't have to comment on for very long. Like, especially with the way Esper Control and Simic Nexus were... were all over arena there for a while. Everybody's like, God, you got to be some kind of psychopath or sociopath or something to play something like this. Just play magic. Well, that's what I'm doing. That's what we're doing. And then last but not least, myth number five, there's only one way to build a control deck. You got to counter everything, kill everything, and then play like two or three win conditions. You have to play on your opponent's turn. You have to play a bunch of counter spells. You have to play a bunch of removal bunch of card draw if you build it the way the the hyperbolic magic community says you have to your deck's going to be like 150 cards and unplayable because you would have to simultaneously play you know a billion counter spells plus a billion removal spells plus a bunch of card draw plus a bunch of lands to make sure you can cast all these spells and then like two win conditions that's, that's obviously awful let me give you a journey through some of the control decks that I've played and or played against over the years. One of my first iterations was Blue Red Tron during Kamigawa Ravnica 9th Edition Standard. And this was like the apex of the Mike Flores tap-out control school at the time. Sometimes you would get draws that just went turn one, Tron piece, turn two, Tron piece signet, turn three, Tron piece Kega. And you would burn for one because mana burn was still a thing. But it was worth it because you had a 5-5 a five, five dragon that took their best thing when it died on turn three. 
But then the rest of the time you had Remand and Manalik and uh, Pyroclasm and Blaze as a Blaze and Invoke the Firemind as long game kill conditions. You know, Kega was still really, really good. Uh, Volcanic Hammer and Shock as, as removal early in the game if you needed them. It was just really good. That summer, we got our first look at what Counterbalance plus Sensei's Divining Top could be. We also got our first look at Solar Flare, which was part, part control deck, part like aggressive reanimator deck. Sometimes you would get a curve as the, as the, the Solar Flare deck where you were like turn one, tap land, turn two, signet, turn three, persecute, naming the color that I know your deck is the most full of and rip a billion, you know, rip four or five cards out of your hand if you're playing against Heartbeat and name green. Yes, it happened to me a lot. Yes, I won through it at least twice. It wasn't pretty, but we made it happen. Anyway, you know, Persecute, really powerful magic card. Just ripped a bunch of answers away from your opponent. And then you just start casting Maloku and Dragons and just bury your opponent under the quality of your cards through the mid-game. But you were also playing cards like Remand. You were playing cards like Wrath of God. You were playing cards like uh, Mortify. You know, you had answers, and then you had these, like, giant threats through the, the late game. So you were a tap-out control deck. But then you also had the the favored card draw spell of the time was Compulsive Research. Draw three, discard two, unless you discard a land. And sometimes you just Compulsive Research, drop a couple of dragons into your graveyard on turn three, so that you could cast Zombify on turn four and just jam one of those giant dragons back into play. And it's better than anything your opponent's doing. If you zombify Yosei the Morningstar on turn four, your opponent kills it, they skip their turn five. At which point you get to untap and then play another one on your turn six. They're not winning that game. No, Court Hussar did a, a nice little game of checks and balances in that format you could you could block early in the game it was card selection it helped you you know thin things out it was also a creature that you could zombify in a pinch or if you ever got debtor's knell online out of the sideboard like you could just keep you could keep cat you'd cast it the first time without the the paying the white just so that it would die and then come back with debtor's knell every turn and you would get card selection over and over and over and that's inevitability so despite the fact that you had some seemingly really fast draws that your opponents couldn't interact with, you also had long game power. On balance, you know, Structure and Force was the counterbalance Sensei's Divining Top deck, and it was like Dark Confidants and um, Maloku the Clouded Mirror. And your like your kill condition was tokens from Maloku wearing an Umazawa's Jite crashing over over and over and over while your divining top and counterbalance locked your opponent out of the game. So the game could turn on its head really quickly and you could pull really far ahead or sometimes you just go like turn two counterbalance, blind hit, turn three bob or turn three top, you know, lock them out again, turn four bob and then you just start to pull ahead on cards while making sure your counterbalance was in good shape. You're already playing top, so you never lost life from Confidant. If you did, it was like one or two. 
you never took the full five from Aloku. And you just buried your opponent under the avalanche of awesome magic cards that you were playing. While they couldn't play any of theirs because of counterbalance and divining top. Like, it was just obscene how good that deck was. Even though it was only good for a couple of months. Well, then we got blue-black teachings and time spiral, which played literally the entire game on its opponent's turn. Teferi, Mage of Jalfir had the same line of text at the top that Teferi Time Reveler does now. You can play your creatures as though they had flash, and your opponent's restricted to sorcery speed. That's really good. Especially on a five-mana flash creature, 3-4, that existed in a format with Mystical Teachings to go find it, also at instant speed. So you just had to make sure you didn't die until you could start setting everything up. Like, that deck got to the point where it was playing... It, it cut the black mana with... It would cut the black mana except as an excuse to flashback the teachings off of Dreadship Reef. And then would play, like... Uh, oh, what was the cards? Um, Thelonite Hermit. You know, because you're, you're pretty majorly mono-blue... With Vesuvian Shapeshifter, Brian Elemental is a long game lock thanks to Teferi plus Teachings. You'd lock your opponent out of ever untapping again while you beat him down with a couple of 5-4s and then kept flipping him back face down so you could, you know, reset the lock. But then, you know, there were variants that would play uh, Thalonite Hermit as another target for Vesuvian Shapeshifter so you could bury your opponent in an avalanche of saplings, you know, Three three sapperling tokens that are crashing in every turn. You get four more every turn like that. That'll kill your opponent in a hurry. That'll turn the corner. You know, whatever you wanted to do with it, honestly. Like the the core was sixteen plus counter spells, a little bit of removal, a couple of board wipes, and then Teferi teachings, think twice, whispers of the muse, and then like Vesuvian Shapeshifter, Brian Elemental. The original list, I think, primarily played Skeletal Vampire as its actual kill card. So the deck was just sweet. And then, of course, Draw New Lich Lord eventually became, was, was the card the deck was known for in its original iteration from Guillaume Wafatapa because, you know, Draw New gave you access to all your counter spells in your graveyard. So <laughs> it was just stupid good. So that's. Four different variate, four different looks at control. Well, then we have the control deck that popped up during Zendikar Standard. That was blue-white tap-out control. Did not play counter spells. Why? Because they were awful. We didn't have any good ones. Why counter it when? Why counter it with your awful counter spells when you can just kill it? Because none of the decks, like, there was not a viable non-creature combo deck in that format. There was no way to just blast you to pieces without getting to untap and attack, so why bother trying? Why bother trying to fight on that axis? Let's just kill all the creatures. And then in the event that you happen across something weird, something out of the ordinary, you can sideboard into cards like Negate and Essence Scatter as needed rather than have them in the main deck and have them be a liability. You know, that's to say nothing of a deck like Splinter Twin, which was a whole other animal and a whole, like, you know, combo controls, just its own 
archetype. So, like, there's a bunch of different ways to build control decks. The blue-black Terramander deck that I'm playing right now plays like one part plays like one part tap-out control, one part like Delver deck, because most of the time you want your Terramander to be a two mana five five that you can leave up mana to protect late in the game. But sometimes it's just a one mana one one against a, a slower deck, and you just want to start chipping in while you protect it through the middle turns, and then make it big and kill them, like. You have aggressive draws too. Terramander on one, and then you thought erasure on two, and then you, you know, you mill another spell, and then you keep hitting your land drops, you keep casting, you know, keep protecting your stuff, you know, keep disrupting your opponent, and then eventually like turn you know, turn five, turn six, you just drop a embodiment of agonies with like four or five counters on it, because you play a bunch of different cards by virtue of playing control, and you just beat them down. They just die. But then sometimes you have the draws where you just interact, interact, kill that, kill that, kill that, counter that, make you discard that. Uh, Terramander, adapt, start attacking. Like, there's a bunch of different ways to build control decks. You know, the Open the Vaults deck is another good example. You don't even have to, uh, you know, stick to conventional mechanics. Your card draw spells don't have to be spells. They can be creatures that draw cards and then come back later as your as your trump. So, like, don't ever let tell anyone your control deck is is bad because it's different. If it's doing a thing, if it's if it's controlling the game like it's supposed to, it's designed to play a long game, and it has a way to win that long game. It's a control deck, at least on some level. So there you go. The five, the five myths about control decks, busted. They're not as expensive as everybody thinks. They don't take more or less skill than anything else. They just take different skills. They're not always among the best in the format, but they're rarely among the worst. Anybody can play a control deck, not just horrible people. And there's a ton of different ways to build them. So, there you have it. So... That's going to wrap it up for this week, everybody. Thanks for listening. Uh, let's talk about where you can find me. You can find me on Twitter. My name, I am at HomewardPathMTG. You can find me on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain. Uh, find me on uh, the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. If you're a patron of the show, you'll have access to the Discord patron Pathfinders. Uh, there's still only a couple of them couple of people there now so the conversations aren't particularly exciting yet but they uh, you know with more of you i'm sure they will be uh so yeah that brings me an upcoming content of course brett myself and two of the people that i work with are planning to go to saturday night modern it was supposed to be fnm last night but it just didn't happen brett didn't leave home in time to be able to get here for fnm so we're, we're bumping it ahead a night. FNM was going to be modern anyway. So Saturday night modern is not like a major shift in what we were expecting. Uh, so riding in cars is going to be another tournament report. And after, after talking this week on the web, next week's homeward path is probably going to be about net decking. So if you're, if you have an opinion on that, you know, Let's let's get it out there. Let's talk about it because that's the whole point of this is discussion. 
And speaking of the whole point of things and, you know, being awesome, let's do our final segment every week. It's one of my favorites. Uh, I love a joke. I, I love a good pun. And I'm a father. And I play magic. So it made sense when I was trying to figure out a good little Twitter outreach program to inject a little bit of enthusiasm about the show that MTG Dad Jokes was just a no-brainer. It was just too perfect. So, oh man, I didn't, I didn't see that one. Uh, first off is from Chris Farrell at Punt and Scoop on Twitter. It says, what did the Simic Biomancer get when she crossed an algae, an algae with a fungus? I don't know, but she sure is liking it. Liking. Anyone? Did I do that one yet? Yeah, I did that one. I know I did that one. Then we have one from at, it's Andrew Brown or at Merck Lurker. It says, we poured a lot of work down Eldrain. <laughs> one of the comments on that says, uh, Eldrain, which is Spanish for the drain. And then another one says, Big Oof, O U P H E. <laughs> another one says I'm just happy dexterity cards are coming back in hashtag throne of Eldraine T-H-R-O-W-N <laughs> that's adorable that's precious I love it uh, next up from this, this is a two-parter we got two and one First one says, it's a real shame. It's from at Lily Haran. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right. It's H-A-A-R-O-N. says, it's a real shame Dak Faden died in the war. Could have come to Eldraine, kind of as a roguish Robin Hood type. Could have proved his worth, you know, maybe get knighted, be given some land for his heroism. Then he could have, then we could have had the greatest fief in the universe, or the multiverse. And Commander's Brew had to chime in with a little bit more at Commander's Brew on Twitter. It's also definitely a shame Dak died in the war because otherwise we could have had him visit an Earth-like plane, maybe get back to some humble roots, start a farm, raise a few cattle. Before you know it, we have the greatest beef in the multiverse. <laughs> uh, good times. Love it. Oh, come on. Bad clicks. Uh, at that gal, Carolyn... Why do blue? Why do red, green, and blue get along so well? Teamer work. T e a m u r. Teamer work. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Brian, for sending me that one. Uh, Jim Davis says part one of my Goblin Guide. Goblin Guide. Because you definitely play that. Anyway, it says, did you know Goblins is not an aggro deck? What's your end game look like? And it's a link to his CoolStuffInc.com article about playing goblins at the Mythic Championship, which I highly recommend you check out just because I love goblins. Uh, next up, Kitchen Table Commander. It's at Kitchen Table CMD. It says, uh, she has haste, enables herself for free, and replaces the discarded card. This is madness! You see what I did there? <laughs> No, this is magic, and you kick them into a well because movie references. 
Uh, card we're talking about, of course, is Anj Falkenrath from Commander 2019. And it is just absurd. Three mana, legendary creature vampire, haste. It's black and red, so you get all the good madness cards except, like, Basking Rootwalla and Arrogant Worm. But you get a 1-3 a haste, tap, discard a card, draw a card, and whenever you discard a card, if it has madness, untap Anj Falkenrath. Come on. <laughs> it's totally fun. And then last but not least, from Andrew Beckstrom, talking about... Oh, where is it? Talking about Dominic Harvey's uh, Star City Games article about how I won SCG Columbus with Monogreen Karn, or Monogreen Tron. And the name of the article is Maximum Carnage, which I already love. But then Beckstrom has to point out, this is an article about a deck playing 50% of the Karns of many players' lists. And at Anna Jane MTG says, Quality over Carnity. <laughs> I love you people. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you had a, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you have a good week. Uh, riding a cars will probably be up Tuesday, and then hopefully we can find time so that the episode will actually come out on time next week. So, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. I know I always enjoy bringing it to you. So, until next week, take it easy. Find your own way home. <laughs>